The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to give plenty of time for, I know I've been gone for three Sundays, which is, uh, which was, um, you know, uh, I hope it went well. I'm sure it did. You know, they're, they're not idiots. They're really wonderful and very smart, and they, I'm sure they did a great job. Um, but I want to make sure that if, uh, if there are any questions that we want to address that maybe came up during this, that I've got time to address them. Uh, and did anything arise during, this, during those three weeks that you kind of wanted to go back and say, hold up just a second. I want to know what he thinks. I want to know what Father Nelson thinks about that. Um, anything like that? Awesome. All right. So, so no questions. That's good. Um, or maybe not. Uh, but um, I, I do want to, I know that you've wrapped up just a little bit on, on the sacraments last week, and I, we will continue that uh, next week, which will be, um, which will be there. But I want to um, make sure that uh, before we jump into ordination, which will happen next week, um, that, that, um, that I do a little bit of review here. Um, you talked last week about confirmation and absolution. Um, confirmation is what a number of you here in this group will uh, more than likely be preparing for as the year goes on. Uh, the bishop will be here the Sunday after Easter Sunday to administer confirmation. Um, and what it what confirmation, confirmation is a tough, a tough thing. I'm just doing a little bit of review because what I want to do, what I want to spend the morning doing is talking about two things, Advent and the prayer book. So uh, we'll do that once, once I get through this. But um, confirmation is essentially uh, this kind of, uh, it's often been called a sacrament in search of a theology. Um, and the, the, uh, the, 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 the essential problem is that um, in the ancient church, it was understood that, that, uh, uh, you had essentially initiatory rites, or what are called the sacraments of initiation, and they were as follows. Baptism, chrismation, and your first reception of the Eucharist. And through these three rites, which happened all at the same night, usually, um, you were made a member of the church. And so if you read some of the ancient uh, catechetical homilies of uh, people like Cyril of Jerusalem, they, they, after this has happened on probably like Easter evening, they walk you through. Okay, so you're wondering, what was this that happened to you last night? Well, here's what happened. Um, these three come together in that way. As uh, adult baptism fades into the background and infant baptism becomes the norm in the, in the West in particular, but also in the East, um, there's this severing of chrismation. And also as um, it becomes the case that most people are baptized in a parish church and not in the cathedral, where the bishop would be. There's a severing of chrismation, which, is usually, which, is, which was usually only administered by bishops, from baptism. So that then you have, you're baptized as a baby, bishop comes around and administers confirmation later. Um, and that's led to the false idea that uh, in order to be fully initiated or in order to have baptism completed, you have to be confirmed. That's not really true. Baptism is complete. It's, it's all set. Um, in Anglicanism, what we basically have now is that um, uh, confirmation is simply this, the laying on of hands by the bishop who lays his hands on you and prays for the increase of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, you make a mature commitment, you own the faith as your own, and the bishop lays hands on you and prays for you. And this is basically the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. Now, moving on to this question of absolution, uh, often called uh, con- confession, often called reconciliation, um, this is essentially, um, you know, there's this kind of interesting question. is like, did, did Jesus Christ personally institute all of the sacraments? It's dicey at certain points. We know that we know that we know that when we look at baptism in the Eucharist, yes, Jesus Christ totally instituted those. We can say that without any, without any worry at all. With the rest, we can say confidently, did Jesus tell his, tell his apostles to lay hands on people for healing? Yes. Did he tell them to forgive sins? Yes. Did he tell them to, uh, to, um, did he tell them to officiate at marriages? No. <laughs> so, so there's this kind of struggle and tension there. But I will say this about, about absolution, confession, and reconciliation, that uh, it is absolutely the case that Jesus gave, his author- gave authority to the apostles to forgive sin. Um, if you read John chapter 20, you know, it's literally Jesus rises from the dead, right? He appears in the upper room among the disciples. The first, you know, this is Easter Sunday, first Easter Sunday. And what does he, what does he do? He breathes on them, which is uh, a little strange, but, you know, you get the point. He says, what does he say? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Um, so this, this is the first authority he gives them um, after his resurrection. Um, how is this maintained in the ancient church? Well, the way it was maintained most normally was that if you were baptized and after that you committed some terrible, notorious sin, you got excommunicated for it, just like straight up. Um, and how would you have to be reconciled to the church? Well, Lent would come around and you would, you would engage in prayer and fasting with the catechumens, and then you'd be restored. And for most of the, uh, the early centuries, this could happen once. You could be restored once, and after that, you're, you're on your own. Uh, but, but they understood that what was happening was you were, the, the bishop was remitting that sin that led to your excommunication um, because he had, the, he had the authority to do so. Well, there's a really big problem with this, and if you can, I mean, just imagine it for a second. Uh, this leads to some people making some pretty... Uh, interesting decisions about this, and one is that um, given the difficulty of penance, um, which was prescribed if you uh, committed a sin, at, you know, deep sin after baptism, notorious sin after baptism, um, the, the fasting and penance was so rigorous that you might second-guess whether or not you ought to be baptized in the first place. And so people were delaying baptism till their deathbeds. And the fathers go on at length about this. They, they really don't like this, but they also don't know what to do about it. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, we really, you know, Augustine goes on at length. I love what he says. He's like, you know, he, he, he just sort of says, today's the day, you know. Uh, now is the acceptable time. He goes on and on. St. John Chrysostom says things like, you know, I, I, we know that a number of you catechumens are thinking, we'll, we'll We'll, we'll just call the bishop to the bedside and I'll, I'll administer baptism as you're dying in your bed. And he said, we're like you. We get busy and we might not be able to make it. Um, is that something that you want to risk your eternal soul on? <laughs> and, they, and, and it's just this problem. So um, at, over the course of many centuries, there's a restructuring of this. And the way it basically starts to go is um, 
Instead of doing public renunciations and public penance, it becomes privatized in the sense that, um, that if you've committed a notorious sin, you, can just, you go to the priest, you go to the bishop, you confess your sins, you're restored, and, and, uh, and all of that, all the content of that confession is held in private. Um, we, we can, you can easily imagine why this would be the case. Uh, think about this, you know, it's, it's Holy Saturday, it's in the evening, and it's time to make public confession before the whole church of your sins, okay? It's like the holiest time in the church, and you have to stand there and say, I committed adultery with so-and-so's wife. He didn't know that. <laughs> um, it creates massive problems, okay? So uh, there's a desire to step back from that. We know that a lot of that happened, uh, especially in the evangelization of Ireland, for instance. Uh, Patrick was a big uh, proponent of auricular private confession, and so it carried on in that way. Um, in addition to that, um, there was just this sort of growing awareness that delaying baptism like that was not desirable. So if, if you could say, hey, you know, baptize your children, we'll do that, and then you have access to this uh, reconciliation throughout your life, and, and it became the practice. What the Anglican reformers are rebelling against, because if you really want to know, the, the entire controversy, the entire controversy in the medieval church that leads to the Reformation is about three things. It's about penance and confession, it's about the mass, and it's about purgatory. And those things are interrelated, right? Because think about it. Uh, the sacrifice of the Eucharist in the medieval, late medieval church is offered on behalf of the living and the dead to remit the sins of those in purgatory. And the Reformers have a problem with that, as they should. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the understanding is that if you, if you die without having gone to confession and you die with sin, then what are you going to wind up in? Purgatory, right? So there's this, and, and also you can't go receive the Eucharist without making your confession. That was another rule. The Anglican, the Anglican divines dispense with this. Why do they dispense with it? It's always the answer in, in this class. It's not scriptural, right? Like, whatever you want to say about it, like requiring Christians to make their confession every year uh, cannot be scriptural. It can be recommended and it can be a good practice, but it can never be required. So the understanding that you have to do this in order to receive is just straight out for the English reformers. And it's why they start to include, which had not been included in the late medieval rites, um, they start to include confession and absolution within the Eucharistic rite itself. So that's why we have confession and absolution within the Eucharistic rite as Anglicans. We'll say more about that as we go forward. Um, but it cannot be required. Uh, I believe it was the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 that started to require annual confessions for all Christians in the West. Um, but the Reformers say, you can't do that. It's not in the Bible. Um, the other thing that, that the Reformers obviously dispense with is a hard and fast uh, doctrine of purgatory, um, and, and so that leads to a change in that as well. Um, the other distinct difference is that uh, the Eucharist might be offered um, on behalf of, of the dead for some of the Reformers, um, but it can never be surely to remit sins of those who are hanging around in purgatory indefinitely. So, so there's this complete restructuring, and what we're left with in the Anglican world is this. In the exhortation prior to the Eucharist, and, and this may be getting down in the weeds a little bit, so excuse me for that, but it used to be that before you would uh, celebrate the Eucharist, so the priest would give the whole congregation the exhortation after morning prayer one Sunday. He would say, hey, listen, I intend to celebrate the Eucharist in the coming weeks. Um, if any of you would like to receive, let me know so that I can do it. 
And if any of you are struggling with, um, with sin that weighs heavily on your conscience, come and talk to me about it that you may receive counsel and absolution. So what's the purpose of confession here? To restore you to repentance, to absolve your conscience, to, to solve the, 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 the sin that, that weighs heavily on your conscience that might keep you from the throne of grace. Does that make sense? Um, so that you can receive communion uh, as, as one who's been deeply reconciled with the Father. Does that, does that help? So, um, in Anglicanism, confession and absolution has been much more of a, of a pastoral practice. Um, it's not so much a kind of juridical, like, you must do this in order to go to heaven without going to purgatory kind of thing, right? Um, which still technically in the Roman Catholic Church, that's what it is, um, just to be abundantly clear. <laughs> um, but um, I would say it, it much more harkens back to the practice of the apostles. It's, it's meant to be, this is a ministry which has been given to the church to absolve sins. Um, and so I want to make sure you know that, and, uh, and, and I'll leave it there. Let's say a bit about Advent. You'll note that when you came to the church, there's some different things around. Uh, Advent this Sunday is actually, is actually our Christian New Year in the liturgical calendar. This is the first day, so Happy New Year. Um, this is the first Sunday of that, uh, of that season, which is the first season of the church year. We enter into this, uh, this liturgical time. Um, in fact, all liturgical time is, is uh, God's time. I was reminded of this because uh, when, I was on, when I was on sabbatical, um, the English priests have a, have a practice of taking off their watches when they start the liturgy. And I was, I was the deacon last Sunday, and, and the sacristan said, Father, your watch. And I took my watch off and handed it to him, and he kept it safe for me while, while the liturgy went on. But see, you enter into this timeless space. The whole church year is meant to be like that, where you're not entering into uh, secular time. You're entering into God's time. Um, and so things are a little different, right? Um, we, uh, in, in, the, in, in our calendars, we don't pay much attention to moon phases. In the church calendar, we, t- we pay great attention to moon phases, right? The whole scheduling of the date of Easter is based on that. Um, we work around equinoxes and things like that. So, uh, so that's part of it. But when you came into the church today, you'll notice that several things are out. One is this Advent wreath, which I'll talk about a little bit more. Um, you'll note that the, the the altar covering is purple, which I'll say a little bit about. And uh, also the nativity scene is there, but it's rather empty. Um, and I'll talk about why. Um, also, there's some greenery up there in the, in the, uh, in the balcony, and uh, things will start to come in as, as, this, as these weeks go forward. Um, a couple other things to note. Um, uh, well, what is Advent? It's a Latin word. Any Latin people are coming, yeah, adventius, yeah, this, this, this coming. Um, and uh, the understanding is that there are, there are three basic comings of Jesus into the world. Can you think of what they are? His first coming, his first advent, right? And then his second coming. But I'm saying three, and this is straight out of Thomas Aquinas. Well, no, so the first is his coming in the flesh, Right? The third is his second coming, to judge the quick and the dead, as the creed says. But the middle one is actually what Thomas Aquinas calls his coming in mente, his coming in the mind. This is his coming to us personally, um, coming into our souls. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll say more about this in the homily, but, but those are these three advents that we, that we think about in, in Advent. Um, 
Also, we're kind of setting the tone for the celebration of the Incarnation, the celebration of, of Christ's birth at Christmas. Um, and so everything is meant to kind of lead you up to that. So this Advent wreath, candles get lit, a new candle every Sunday. So uh, if you want to know how to do it, uh, the third candle is the rose candle, which is lit on the third Sunday of Advent, which is also known as, uh, as uh, Gaudete Sunday. Um, and that's because the preface uh, begins with the words from the Psalms, Gaudet, Gaudea, Gaudet, um, this um, rejoice. Um, so we start with the candle directly across the wreath from it, and that is, that's the first Sunday, and then you go clockwise around until you reach that fourth Sunday, and then, and then you know it's starting to become like Christmas is this week, right? Um, and, well, why do we do this? It seems like a lot to kind of think about. Well, in one sense, it's just sort of greatly practical in a, in a, uh, in a society that's already started celebrating Christmas uh, to sort of slow it down, and say, let's, let's build some anticipation here, right? The best things come to those who wait. Um, lots of parenting books talk a great deal about the value of building in your children, the virtue of being able to sustain delayed gratification, right? Um, it's a wonderful thing. But also for us as uh, Catholic and liturgical Christians, Christmas is not just one day. It's 12 days, and we celebrate them big time. Um, in our house, we have a feast for 12 days, and it gets, it almost gets tiring at a certain point, because you're like, oh no, more food. <laughs> but it's meant to be this, like, sustained feast. Um, and so you enter into that. Um, one of the things that we do in the church is, uh, if you look back in the back left corner, can you see? See who's there in the back corner by that window? It's, it's Mary and Joseph, and over these Sundays, they're actually going to make their way down the windowsills to the point where they're there on Christmas. So, um, and, and who's following in behind, behind the baptismal font? Yeah, the Magi with their camels. And they will follow, right? So that at Epiphany, they'll be, they'll be there as well. Because at Epiphany, we remember when they make it to the manger. Now, everything that's done inside the church can be done in your house, <laughs> So if you have a nativity set, it's great fun for the kids to watch Mary and Joseph make their way to the nativity scene. It's great fun to watch the, 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 the wise men go from the laundry room all the way through the house and ultimately make it to the nativity scene on your mantle or wherever you have it. Um, and this is a great way to teach the kids what happens, right? It's not, it's not the nativity scene is set up day after Thanksgiving. Jesus is there, we have Christmas for a month, and then after that we just take everything down. It's, there's a progression here. There's, a, there's, a, there's an entering into uh, this story. Um, and so that changes. Um, in, in Advent, we also don't jump the gun and sing Christmas carols right away. We have Advent music. And, and, it's, and it's not, it's all about longing. It's all about the prophets. It's all about, um, this is part of the thing that we modern uh, Kind of especially evangelical Christians have sort of lost, which is so much of what taints our understanding of Christianity, and it's not a bad thing, but it's just that we overemphasize it, is about personal justification. Like, you know, how do I get to go to heaven when I die? Um, in the ancient world, in the ancient church, and especially in Jewish Christianity, there's this understanding that what we're actually waiting for and what we believe has come in Jesus Christ is God's promised Messiah that we waited so long for. Um, and Advent reawakens that waiting in us. It's an important part of the spiritual life, isn't it? Because listen, 
I'm all for it, right? <laughs> Realized eschatology is the heart and soul of the Christian life, right? It's, it's, it's not only Jesus will come, but he's come, and we have this, uh, this sort of already but not yet life, right? We're already living the life of the kingdom, but it hasn't fully come. And I would just say, like, that's Advent in a nutshell. Um, so so we, we enter into this season in which that's the case, where it's not all about jumping the gun and, and jumping all over it and getting it, and getting it done, um, which is awfully hard to do, right? I mean, as early as the end of, you know, day after, um, day after Halloween, you know, stores are full of Christmas stuff. I mean, I get it. It's hard to do. Um, what does this look like in the household? Well, in our house, uh, I can only tell you what we do in our house. Um, we have uh, several books of uh, Advent meditations, which we'll read at dinner. We put the Advent wreath out on the table. We light the candles. Um, some nights it doesn't happen because it's insane, and that's okay. Uh, but we light the candles. We, we have special times of prayer. Uh, we talk about the scriptures. Um, we might sing an Advent hymn. Um, we definitely put out our nativity set, and the, and the various parties make their way to the crash. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a time in which um, there's not much decoration in our house. Um, usually we allow ourselves to start to decorate on St. Thomas Day, which is uh, December 21st, so we're a little early, but, you know, it's okay. Uh, and usually on St. Thomas Day, because he's the apostle to India, we eat Indian food, we put up the tree, we don't decorate it yet, and we just put the tree in so we can have it ready and have it in there and get the best deal on a tree that, you know, you can imagine. Um, by the way, like... We bought a massive tree last year. The $300 tree at HEB for like 60 bucks last year. It was awesome. Uh, I had to cut three feet off of it. <laughs> but but this, is a, this is a great way to do it. Um, and um, and what, what, what we find, um, you know, we even in our house, we, we stopped giving gifts at Christmas. Like we don't give or receive gifts at Christmas because we want Christmas to be about, about the feasting and about the enjoyment of family. So that's been a wonderful blessing to us. I'm not saying give up giving gifts, but it's just, it just kind of tempers that. Uh, that lust for material possessions that often gets uh, built up in your kids to the point of just being insane, right? Um, and uh, so that's, that's part of it. Um, I'd also say one of the things we love to celebrate in our household is, is uh, St. Nicholas Day, which is December 6th. So that's coming up this week. Um, and uh, the old tradition is that on St. Nicholas Day, you have your kids uh, put their shoes out by the mantle, and uh, in the morning they wake up and there's a little orange in their shoe and some chocolate coins. And there's lots of great resources on this online. Um, and, it's, and it's just kind of a fun, like, okay, we're entering into the season. It's not really Christmas, but, you know, we're remembering St. Nicholas and all the good and all, the, and all of his life, and uh, so it's great fun. Um, let me see what else to say. In terms of your personal uh, prayers, uh, the, the, uh, the daily office, and I'll talk a little bit more about that because we've got quite a bit of time, takes a bit of a turn. Uh, so, uh, we're starting a whole new liturgical calendar. Uh, Father Jonathan and his uh, cohort, or his what do we call it? Your 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 band of young Turks gave us a great gift in the uh, in the lectionary for uh, for the daily office, and we'll, I'll show you how to use that. Um, and that's you know, honestly, you can just read the daily office lectionary uh, at your table every night, and you'll have great Advent fodder for the whole time. Um, uh, there's there's something really wonderful about just kind of doing the most basic thing, um, and. Uh, 
But the offices take a bit of a turn. There, there's some different canicles you can use, um, and so I want to walk you through that. Um, also, the, uh, the colics for Advent really speak of, uh, of Christ coming into the world um, and coming to us personally, um, and so we'll talk about that. If everyone would grab a prayer book, I thought we'd spend maybe the next 20 minutes doing uh, an orientation session on the new prayer book, how it works, how to use it. Um, so it's this red book that you have right there. Um, this is one of the, uh, you know, first 2,000 copies, and as you can see, it's already looking shabby because the cover had not been perfected yet. So, uh, you know, we've got these great covers, and there are no errors in, in, the, in that, but this is one of the uh, original copies. Uh, it's all pretty much the same stuff. So I want to give you a basic orientation to what a prayer book is, how it works, how you follow it, how you work through it. Um, and the best place to start is to actually look at the preface, which is on um, on page, yeah, one, two, three, that kind of thing. And, and I'm not going to read through it now, but I will just tell you that if you ever want to, you know, uh, have an easy way to fall asleep, you can read this. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's a great history of the prayer book. But the the, uh, the place where we really get going is, uh, is to just say that the point of a prayer book is to simplify divine worship, to simplify the liturgies. In the medieval period, the liturgies had gotten so complicated, and you had to have so many books that um, it was, it took, it took a PhD to figure out how to get through the whole thing. And most, most of PhDs didn't even figure it out, because um, as you know, PhDs aren't always good at the such things. Uh, so, but it was hard, you know, and you had, to, you had to sort of sort through, well, what are we celebrating today? Is it a first class, second class, third class feast? You know, how do we do this? What's happening here? Um, and you had all these books, and you had to piece it all together. Thomas Kramer's genius, who was the, the architect of the prayer book, um, was not only that he was building a single book that could be used in concert with a Bible to do just about anything you needed to do, and on Sundays, not even that, because all the readings were in it originally. They're not in this one. Uh, there was a bit of a turn that took place. Uh, but it's all there. You can have this one book, and it's one book for the whole realm. So uh, this is one of the things I just find amazing, is that um, the, still to this day, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is used throughout um, the, the former British Empire. You know, it's just an amazing thing. So... Very helpful, and this is this is uh, this follows in that tradition, um, but it makes it very simple. Um, it's simple to find the readings. It's simple to find out what what we're reading today. It's very simple to follow the calendar, and uh, it's all very straightforward. So um, let's let's jump straight to morning prayer and talk about how to do morning prayer. Um, the Anglican rule of life, uh, if I can put it so simply, and we'll talk more about that in the coming year, is uh, is simply this: weekly communion daily morning and evening prayer, and private devotions. So you have this realm of uh, private prayers that you pray on your own, and you might have any number of practices that you rely on in a, in a, in a regular basis. But the structure for that is given by weekly communion on Sunday mornings and, and, and the daily office. Um, so what do we put, the, what's, what shows up at the very beginning of the prayer book? Daily morning prayer. And unlike past prayer books, there's only one right for it. And it's very straightforward and very easy to follow. So, what do you do? You just jump in. You start reading. Um, you have three options for the for the opening, and 
By the way, it's very similar in evening prayer, so I'm not going to go through that, but I just want to show you how to do it. Um, you confess your sins. If you're with a group, you can just uh, begin with either one of these opening sentences. And then everything that's in bold, you read uh, together. That's, that's to point out that you read it together. Um, you, can, uh, you can pray. If you're a layperson, you can pray these, these prayers. You can do this alone. You can do it with a group. You can do it with your family. You can do it with your husband and wife together. Um, you can, it's, it's meant to be very adaptable, right, in that sense. Um, then we get on to the invitatory, um, and, uh, and it's all very straightforward. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. This is important. So uh, we don't have red rubrics in our prayer book. Um, rubric simply means a, a, a red line. And the old statement is, you, you say what's in black and you do what's in red, okay? Um, and so a rubric here, in this, in this sense, is these, these sentences in italics. It gives instructions, but they're not to be said. Um, and you might know that, uh, let me give you an example here. Uh, on page... Um, on page 14, there's a wonderful word that often appears in rubrics, and it's, it's may. Um, may means you don't have to do it, but you can. Um, you can. You can greatly simplify morning and evening prayer by not doing what is allowed. Um, you can also lengthen it a great deal by doing everything that's possible, right? So there's this freedom right within that to say, well, I, I think I'm going to do all of it or I'm going to do, do what I can this morning. So, you know, this is what I'd say to you is if you have 10 minutes to do morning prayer, you can do morning prayer. If you have half an hour, you can still do it. If you want to take an hour and read very slowly and do the Psalms, all the Psalms that are prescribed for that day, you can go ahead, knock yourself out. Um, it's meant to be that way. You can take a lot of time for intercessions as well. Um, as we get forward, you'll see that there's, uh, there are also these wonderful canticles for morning prayer, uh, the Venite and the Jubilate. Uh, usually we use the Venite on most days during the year. The Jubilate is usually used on uh, major feasts, and if you want to know what those are, you can simply turn to the calendar. There's a ca lovely calendar in the back, um, um, which gives you all the days, uh, and that begins on page 691. So that's where you find out, is there a major feast today? And you just look up the date, uh, and you'll find it. Um, during Easter, we use this uh, canticle called the Pascha Nostrum. It's a selection of scriptures uh, from the New Testament, particularly from the writings of Paul, uh, that talk about the resurrection. And uh, it's a great way to memorize the relevant texts uh, from the New Testament on the resurrection. Uh, you say the Pascha Nostrum enough times, you'll start to really get the, you'll start to memorize some scripture, actually. Actually, just doing morning prayer is a great way to memorize scripture. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, so this is this is one where I was a little grumpy about this, but I've now fully accepted it. The reading calendar in the daily op for the daily office, and I'll. I'll show you that actually right now because we're right at that time, um, actually follows the secular calendar and not the church calendar. So that's a big boost, actually. Um, so if we go to that, I'll show you the daily office lectionary. That begins on page 738. Okay, awesome. Um, so let's actually turn to December, which um, 
763. Um, and you'll see the readings for morning and evening prayer on that page, 762 and 763. Um, so what do you have? Instead of it being like Advent 1, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, you just have December 1st, December 2nd, December 3rd, December 4th, December 5th, and so it's very easy to find, and I just leave a marker right in that page so that we know, ex you know, you just turn there and you look. Um, you'll note that, uh, that here, one of the things that you start doing in the evening prayer is you're reading from Isaiah straight up till December 23rd, and if you know Isaiah well, that's great Advent reading. Isaiah 44 through Isaiah 66 is awesome Advent reading, okay? So you're getting that. Um, there are psalms prescribed for morning and evening prayer. So, for instance, the psalm for this morning is Psalm 78, verses 41 to 73. That works really well. The other way that you can do the Psalter is to do a 30-day cycle instead of a 60-day cycle. Um, and this is a really good way to do it, and let me show you how to do that. If you turn to the first page of the Psalter, since it's December 1st, and that is... Am I getting, is this getting confusing or are we, are we tracking? Okay. Um, don't, don't, uh, it's, it's not, there are lots of ways to do this, so don't feel like you're, you're, you're going to lose it and not know how to do it because it's all there. So on page 270, um, you have the first psalm, and you'll note that it says day one morning prayer. Those are all the psalms for day one morning prayer until you hit day one evening prayer. So Psalms 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 you do in the morning. In the evening, uh, day one evening prayer, Psalms 6, 7, and 8. And then tomorrow you would start with day two morning prayer, right? Because it's the second of the month. Um, works really well. Uh, that is a lot of Psalms. So uh, you might find that's too much and you want to go to the 60-day cycle. Great. Here at Christ Church, we do the 60-day cycle and it's great. Um, but uh, when I was over in Oxford, it was the 30-day cycle, and it was a lot of psalms, but it was really fun because <laughs> uh, it just, you cover the whole Psalter every month. Um, okay, having done that, then uh, now let's talk about readings for morning prayer. So we'll go to that first, let's look at December in the, and this will be on page 762. So for morning prayer this morning, we would read Ecclesiasticus 14, which may be unfamiliar to some of you. It's in the Apocrypha, and it's often called the Wisdom of Sirach, and we've been reading from the Wisdom of Sirach for the last week and, and change, actually for the last, three, last two weeks. Um, that's the first lesson, and the second lesson is the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 24, verses 1 through 23, and you'll also note that in morning prayer, we're about to make a transition to reading Revelation. Great Advent reading, right? Do you see the point? So you're, you're reading, in, and it's not directly tracking with the church calendar, but it's getting you there, right? You're starting to read some of these things so that every year you're reading the same, the same readings um, every year. Um, this is not on a two-year cycle, which is really helpful because back in the uh, 1979 book, we had a two-year cycle for morning and evening prayer readings, and it was really hard to do, and it didn't quite work, and, and you wound up just, it wound up just being confusing, to be honest. Um, this is much easier to track. Um, okay, so you got that? This is just a... Go ahead. Sure. Yes, they are. Yep. And here at Christ Church now, we're, start, we're starting this thing. We're going to have the Eucharist on every major feast. 
So you can just be like, oh, it's morning prayer. Oh, it's St. Thomas Day. Like, I could go to the church at noon for the noon Eucharist. Like, or just look in the church email and find out when it is. So it might be in the evening at certain points, but most of the time it'll be just a noon Eucharist on that day. Do you see how this, do you see how this kind of works and it builds this kind of life of prayer in you? Okay. Once you're done, after each reading, it's customary to read one of the, one of the canticles. So uh, we'll switch over here, and you can do the Te Deum, which is a longer one. Um, by tradition, the Te Deum was, uh, was crafted by Augustine and Ambrose as Augustine was being baptized, and they traded off lines. That didn't happen, but it's a good story. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, uh, but it's a very ancient, very ancient hymn. Uh, the Benedictus Hestomine, and then the Benedictus... Uh, this is on page, starting on page 17, uh, and this goes through to page uh, 20. Um, it's customary to do a, to do a, uh, to do a canticle after each lesson. You can also do a canticle between the lessons, or you could just do, maybe say you just wanted to do one of the lessons. Um, you can easily switch the, two, the one-year lectionary into a two-year by doing a lesson in the morning and a lesson in the evening and then switching and doing the second lesson. Uh, there are so many options here. Um, and, and like I said, if you've got 10 minutes, you can do morning prayer. Um, now, to do the whole thing, it takes about 25 minutes to a half an hour. Okay, then you have the Apostles' Creed, and we say the Apostles' Creed twice a day, morning and evening prayer, um, and then we begin the prayers. It's customary to kneel for the prayers, although you might just not, that might be too much, and, uh, and you just kind of want to sit for it. That's great. Um, and you begin. What we have first is the Lord be with you, and into this back and forth, then uh, the Kyrie's, and then we pray the Lord's Prayer. You'll note that it's given in two sets of language. Uh, this is because there's always this incessant insistence that we must have a modern language Lord's Prayer that no one uses. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> because, because, you know, listen, I have a great deal of leeway here liturgically at Christ Church. I'm pretty sure that if I started using the modern language Lord's Prayer, there would be rebellion fomented among you. I know that because it would just be like, well, the new Lord's Prayer is terrible. I hate it. It's like, and I would be leading it probably. Um, uh, then you have these kind of call and response uh, prayers as well. These are all taken from Scripture, mostly from the Psalms, um, and that's a really wonderful thing to do. I want to kind of take a step back. If you're praying the Psalms together, one of the things that I would recommend is, is either praying half by half verse like we do here at Christ Church on Sunday mornings, or by whole verse, trading off if you're praying with someone. The other thing that I'd recommend is there are asterisks at the end of each line, and you can take a little pause there, just, you know, just enough to kind of say, Lord, have mercy. Uh, it'll slow you down. The important thing with the Psalter is not to blaze through it. You want to slow down. It needs to be prayerful. Okay, then we have the Collect of the Day. Unlike past prayer books, this is also very easy to find the Collect of the Day. How do we find it? Well, what's, what's today in the church calendar? First Sunday of Advent. So we start in the new year. We go to the Collects, which begin on page 598. Again, a great place to put a ribbon if you've got ribbons. You know, ribbon where the collect is is a great place to have a ribbon. Um, and at this point, you would pray the collect for the first Sunday in Advent. Um, if it's a major feast, you'll find the collect for that, which is in the back of the section of the collects, and you pray that. Um, but even when we get to the very confusing time, this goes to your question uh, about, uh, about the kind of um, 
propers for Pentecost, which we just finished. How do you find that? Well, it's the week of the Sunday from this, sun, from this day to this day, right? If, it's, if the Sunday falls between August 14th and August 20th, it's proper 15th. I mean, it's, it's fairly, fairly straightforward. Um, so, those are the collects. Now, what is a collect? Basically, collect refers to a, a couple things. One is their recollection prayers, which, which uh, leads you to recollect God's mercy and grace in the midst of this life, but they're also the collected prayers of the church. So, some of these date back to like the fourth and fifth century. They're so old. Um, some of these date back to the Reformation, but most of them are, are uh, kind of medieval creations, and, and Cramer maintained them, um, and we maintain them here. There are also collects for the individual days of the week. So there's one for Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Kind of amazing. So you get used to this. Like, it's okay. Uh, this, this works really well. And then there are one of three prayers for missions. So these are the, the normal plan is you have three collects that you pray at morning, at morning prayer. Okay. Evening prayer follows much the same uh, structure. You'll also see at the end here there's room for uh, intercessions and thanksgivings. At Christ Church, we take a bit of a, we take a pause, and we sit, and we pray uh, freely, intercessions and thanksgivings, and then we sing a hymn, um, the hymn of the week usually. Then there are these kind of closing prayers, like the general thanksgiving and the prayer of St. John Chrysostom. Uh, these can be, uh, you can do one or both. Um, I, can they be skipped? Yeah, one or both. So you have to do one or both. <laughs> um, and, then, and then there are these final blessings. You'll also see after morning prayer, there are opening sentences of Scripture which can be used. Uh, this is on page 27. So Advent is, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, in the desert a highway for our God. Um, so you begin with this sentence from Scripture. All right. Evening prayer, this is a really important thing. I started with morning prayer because morning prayer is the complicated one. Um, it's way less complicated than it used to be, but evening prayer is super straightforward. Um, there are not many options. You've got the Magnificat and the Nuctimittis, and that's it. You'll also see that there, there is a section of, for midday prayer, which is usually prayed at noon. That's not part of the traditional Anglican offices, but it was inserted into the prayer book in the last uh, 40 years uh, to kind of be a supplemental uh, part. And we also have that in Compline, which begins on page 57. So you can pray that as well. So you get kind of four offices of the day. Uh, some people pray all four. Uh, the Anglican rule of life doesn't include midday prayer in Compline, but it can be nice to just kind of have. You'll also note there's a section um, entitled uh, Family Prayer. This begins on page 71. So you might think, man, that's really fun, and I think the world of morning prayer, love evening prayer, but that's a lot, especially when we have little kids. Well, what do you do? Family prayer. It's great. Um, you get some of the prayers, some of the, st it's very simple, very straightforward, um, and, uh, and, you know, your kids can get through it, right? Um, that's really good. Uh, let me see. You also have a bunch of additional prayers that can be prayed at family prayer, and then on page 79, you've got supplemental canticles, which can be used at morning prayer, mostly. All right. Then we have the Great Litany, which we do here during Lent, but it can be done at any time. This actually falls into not only the category of liturgical prayer, but also the Great Litany is great for private devotions. You know, if you're ever in a time of stress, like you feel like the bottom's about to fall out of your life, Great Litany, like pick it up, pray. It's wonderful. Um, when you have no words to pray, the Great Litany is, is absolutely great for that. Then we keep going. I'm, I'm going to do, this is like a really 
quick Cook's tour of the whole prayer book. Then we have the Eucharist. The Eucharist in this prayer book comes in two rites. There's the rite that we do at Christ Church, which is the Anglican Standard Text. It's longer. Uh, it, many people don't like it because it's longer and it is more wordy, but uh, here we are. And I think, uh, you know, you, you're going to get used to this one, and, and uh, you know, sometimes you'll go to something else and they'll use the ancient, the ancient text. That's fine, but we're not here. Uh, um, not, I don't have anything against it. It's just, you know… Uh, so, this is very easy to follow here, too. You can come into the church on Sunday morning, open straight up to page 104, you flip pages. It's as simple as that. You won't flip around at all in this one because it's pretty much a straight up, straight through kind of thing. And you can just kind of hold your finger in the middle of it or put a bookmark in and you're good to go. Um, we follow it pretty much to a T. Um, so we go straight through, prayers of the people, confession and absolution, straight into the Eucharistic rite. The only thing you might have to flip over for if you want to is the proper preface of the day, which is included in the Eucharistic rite, and, uh, but that's kind of like, don't worry about it. It's just going to be prayed, and, and five seconds later, you'll be on to the next thing. Um, so there you have it. Um, then you have the ancient renewed text, which comes on page 123, but you won't need to worry about that here at Christ Church, at least for the foreseeable future. There's a lot of extra stuff, supplemental texts, um, and then the next major portion I want to show you is the liturgies for baptism are contained um, after this, um, so page 161. I would merely repeat to you that if you're interested to know what Anglicans believe about baptism, it's right here, because uh, this is one of the things I want to really impress on you. Anglican teaching is contained in our liturgies. How we worship is what we believe. What we believe is how we worship. Um, lex serandi, lex credendi, as the, as the old statement goes. Uh, the law of praying establishes the law of believing. So there's baptism. And um, we have baptism with confirmation, so that will occasionally happen here. And then we have holy matrimony. So if you want to know what we believe about marriage, right here. It's right here in the book. Um, and uh, if you're thinking about getting married, this might be something you want to read with your prospective uh, spouse. Uh, sit down and read it on occasion. It's a very, very good thing to do. Um, holy matrimony. Then we go to healing. Uh, there, there's a liturgy for the birth or adoption of a child, which was, I believe, done here a couple weeks ago. Uh, and, uh, and we did this with uh, the Nichols family a couple days ago. Uh, great fun. Uh, there's communion of the sick and prayers for healing. There's also the burial rites, which happen on page 247. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I love to say this. If you're an Anglican, your life will be marked uh, by the very liturgies which mark the English royal family. Uh, you, will be, you will be baptized that way, you'll be married that way, you'll be buried that way. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the things I've loved about, uh, about this through the years is that um, everybody has the same burial rite. Like, burying the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich. Same, same burial rite. Um, I love sitting down with couples who are about to be married and saying, did you catch the royal wedding last year? I'm going to do it like that. <laughs> No, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's great. You know, it's uh, really helpful. Um, then we also, after burial of the dead, uh, we have, did I catch the confession? Confession's also contained in these pastoral rites as well. Uh, what's that? In the rites of healing. Yeah, that's right. That was a, 
interesting idea, which is fine. It's good. Okay. Then we have the Psalter. This is a great, great advancement in Psalters. Okay. So let me just give you a bit of the background of Psalters. Okay. Psalms are impossible to translate. <laughs> because when you sit down with Hebrew, if you know Hebrew and you're a genius, uh, and try to translate the Psalter, it will come out in gook. It's awful. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It sounds disjointed, not poetic. So uh, in the Reformation, Miles Coverdale, an English uh, writer, decided he was going to write a poetic version of the Psalter, which wound up in the prayer books. Beautiful language. Is it a faithful translation? It's not meant to be, right? That's okay. Uh, it's meant to be the Psalter. It's meant to be beautiful. And this follows in that tradition. Uh, this is based on the work of actually uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, T.S. Eliot, right? Am I getting these right? Yeah. A bunch of people working on it. There were revisions to this, but um, you'll note that um, we've made this transition between the previous Psalter, which was a more modern translation, and then this, which is meant to be more beautiful, based on the Coverdale Psalter, and it's just gorgeous. Um, it uses uh, great language, and um, having come off three weeks of using the original Coverdale Psalter in the 1662 prayer book, you know, this is much easier to follow. You're not, you're not using arcane words like conies and uh, things like that. Um, I had to look up what a cony was. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, yes. So it is, it is a faithful translation as far as it can be. Yeah. Yeah. True. That's true, too. Yeah. Good, good. Then we have, following the Psalter, other rites, which are basically these. Ordination rites. There's an ordination of deacons, ordination of priests, ordination, and an ordination rite for the consecration of a bishop. Um, there's also a, a great liturgy for the institution of a rector, which we followed a couple of years ago here at Christ Church when I was in, instituted as rector. Uh, you'll see also consecration of a place of worship, there are lots of extra things. There's, and then there are liturgies for Lent and Holy Week, especially Ash Wednesday, uh, Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, uh, the Easter Vigil, and, um, and those, those we will turn to in the coming year. Um, then you have the Collects, which you'll need to reference at various times. Um, and then there are numerous prayers in the back, which you can uh, look to and flip through and find uh, various prayers. There's great prayers for, like, birthdays and prayers for your family and prayers for the nation um, all fit in there. And then we find the calendar, okay? So this is, I mean, I'm just going to, I don't, at the risk of being extreme, this is so vastly easier to follow than what we had in the past. I mean, I used to joke that one of the ways I hang on to my job as a priest is to be the only person who knows how to use a prayer book in the parish. Um, and I, I don't have to be that anymore. You can use this. You can, it's not hard to figure out. Um, you can just take a little bit of time with it. And, and, uh, and, and don't worry if it feels like learning to walk early on. It's going to be that. Uh, but I do want to encourage you. Um, you know, I've, I've said this in the past. If you're going to be an Anglican, you might as well start praying morning and evening prayer right? Now, does that mean you'll pray evening prayer every day? No. Does it mean you'll pray both of those every day? No. 
start with morning prayer, start with evening prayer, um, build from there, start things that are sustainable that you can really do. Um, and, and if it feels like this is easy, then add a little bit. If it feels like this is way too hard, subtract. Um, it's not meant to be onerous. It's not meant to be burdensome. Um, but I do think it's, it's a, it adds a great richness to your life. Um, one of the stories that I'll tell is, is of a friend of mine who, who was teaching on, uh, on the daily office, and, and somebody came to him and said, you know, this just feels so uh, impersonal to pray these prayers that I, that, I didn't, that I didn't, I didn't write these prayers. I mean, they're not mine. And so my priest friend said, listen, just do Compline every night before you go to bed for six weeks. And at the end, this guy came back and he said, I get it. <laughs> and at this point, my priest friend had forgotten all about the conversation. You get what? He's like, I get it. Like, those prayers became my prayers. Like, yes. See, there's the point. Um, listen, we think it's easy to pray, or we want to think it's easy to pray. Listen, the truth is, it's not easy to pray. It's hard to pray. Um, what, what, what morning and evening prayer gives us is it gives us a template for prayer. It gives us a, a, a launching point from which we can learn to pray. Um, and, and even those of us who might say, I've been praying all my life. You know what? At some point, you're going to reach a dry patch. <laughs> and every time, the, my, my advice is pick up a prayer book. It will, it will, it will uh, bring life to that dead part. Um, I'm also reminded that Teresa of Avila, who it could be easily argued, had the most rich prayer life of any saint who's ever lived ever outside of Jesus and Mary, right? Um, she would go into her times of devotion and prayer gripping a prayer book in her hand that she never used. Not a book of common prayer, just a manual of prayers. But she took comfort in it knowing that if she ever ran dry, she could just open it up. Do you see how that works? So, um, so this is something I want to commend to you. Um, it, it, it will be of great help to you. And, uh, you know, one of the things I don't want to see in this parish is that the prayer book is just something we refer to on Sunday mornings when we're in a pew, uh, but that it become the, uh, the lifeblood of our, of our congregation. So I offer that to you as a way to think about it and a way to, a way to enhance your spiritual life. People always ask, I've been doing this devotional my whole life, you know. I really love it. What do you say about that? Keep going, right? Keep doing it. Um, but I would, I would also uh, ask you, how much Scripture are you getting? Are you reading the Psalms? Are you, uh, are you, is your prayer life encompassing more? And, uh, and, and just kind of challenge you to think about those things. Um, the other thing that I'd say, too, is uh, if you have private devotions, I am the last one. I will never say to you, Give up your private devotions. You don't need them. No, keep them up. But, but having a daily life of liturgical prayer is really helpful, um, and it should be part of your rule of life. Okay, thanks a lot.